This morning, I, I think I would just like to round out the kind of series I was doing in Galatians 5 by finishing chapter 5 of Galatians. And Lord willing, I'm, I'm hoping to get back to 1 Timothy. I've had a long break in there, and as you know, it's largely due to the struggles I've been having uh, uh, with my memory and cognitive function since uh, my two bouts with sepsis and and, and uh, bacteremia at the end of last year. I still haven't fully come back from that, so I'd appreciate your continued prayers. But we'll see. We'll see if the Lord uh, enables me to finish that sermon finally in First Timothy four one or not. Uh, but uh, He's been with me and He's blessed me and He's kept me going. And I just have to assume He wanted me to take a break from First Timothy. Otherwise, He would have enabled me to finish it already. So. We just follow where the Lord leads, right? We make our plans and he directs our steps. And sometimes he, he uses all kinds of different means to do that. But uh, he's gracious in whatever means that he chooses to use. Uh, let's get into Galatians now, chapter 5. I'd like to read uh, verse 16 through the end of the chapter, verse 26, so we can get some of the context back in our heads here. Uh, Beginning in, in uh, Galatians 5.16, we read, I say then, walk in the Spirit. We saw that was a figurative way of talking about how to live your life, right? Live your life in the Spirit. Um, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Remember, the flesh is Paul's word for describing uh, the sin that remains within us, indwelling sin that still remains within us even after we're saved and uh, that we still battle. That's basically what he means by that. When he says, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, he means that bent we have still towards sinning that we battle. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit... You're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. And without phrase and the like, he indicates, remember, he's giving us a representative list, not an exhaustive list. Uh, I'm sure he would put pride, for example, chief among our vices, and I didn't see it in the list. Uh, it's a representative list of what he means by works of the flesh. And then he says, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And remember, he meant by that is, if this is what characterizes your life, then you're not someone who's walking in the spirit or and, uh, of course, that would then mean you don't have the Spirit, right? <clears throat> Almost certainly. But, he says, uh, the fruit of the Spirit, and this is another representative list, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And now this morning's text. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's interesting that he says that when he's just said you're going to be battling it as a Christian. 
that even a Christian who's walking in the Spirit, he's battling the flesh all the time. In fact, that's what walking in the Spirit entails. He's, set, he's told us that. It entails a battle, a constant battle with the flesh. But now he says, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So we're going to have to think about what does he mean by that then? If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited. There's a work of the flesh now getting mentioned that didn't get <laughs> mentioned in the previous list, right? Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. I don't know about you, but I feel a real need to pray here <laughs> before we go any further. So let's do that. Holy Father, I do ask you so much that you would fill us with your spirit and with understanding so that we can understand what your word says, what you intended to say through our, de our departed brother Paul when you inspired him to write this epistle and these words. We thank you for the time uh, that we spent uh, looking into Genesis this morning. And we're reminded that you created a man male and female. We're reminded in this day and age how important it is that we take a firm stand on that idea. There are two sexes, male and female, and that is it. You're one or the other, and you can't become, if you're a woman, a man, or a man if you're a woman, and it's sinful to even want to. Uh, Lord, help us to remain strong, standing for such truths. Thank you for the reminder this morning that you are the God of the universe and you're the one who decided what mankind was going to be like, not us. And any attempt to change what you have uh, providentially brought about by your sovereign will is idolatry and sin. Uh, it's works of the flesh, pure and simple, the kind of things we should be battling as Christians who walk in the spirit. And today I pray you'll help us to be encouraged to do that uh, even more faithfully as we seek to understand these words. Again, I pray, please fill us with your spirit to that end. And we'll give you all the glory for what you do through your word this morning, recognizing that you alone deserve it. We pray all these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The uh, 17th century Puritan commentator, John Trapp, uh, once wrote, quote, when Christ came in the flesh, we crucified him. When he comes into our hearts, he crucifies us. Say that again. When Christ came in the flesh, we crucified him. When he comes into our hearts, he crucifies us. Such was his take on the teaching of the Apostle Paul in the opening verse of the passage before us this morning. And we'll see that he pretty much hit the nail on the head with his typically pithy summary. His, his commentary is full of little statements like that. So let's begin by looking at verse 24 then in order to see what Paul is saying along these lines. In verse 24 he says, And those who are Christ's, or literally those who are of Christ." have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Those who are Christ's have crucified. If you're, if you're Christ right now, that means you already have crucified the flesh with its passions 
and desires. Now, those who are familiar with the epistle to the Galatians are going to notice immediately that Paul's recalling an earlier teaching from this same epistle back in chapter 2. So turn back to chapter 2 for a moment, because he's talked about this concept really already. Chapter 2, verse 20. Many of you have memorized this verse, perhaps. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Again, he says, I have been. Something already happened. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, and there in the flesh means still in this body, I think. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now notice the difference between the way Paul spoke of being crucified with Christ earlier. Earlier, writing of himself, of course, as representative of us all. He's using his own experience to describe what is the experience of every believer, or what should be, right? Um, Paul there spoke in the passive voice of our having been crucified with Christ. But here in chapter 5, verse 24, he speaks a little differently. Here in chapter 5, he speaks in the active voice of our having crucified the flesh as something we did. So earlier he spoke of being crucified with Christ as something that happened to us. Here, he describes it as something we do. In both instances, it seems to me, Paul has conversion in mind because he's talking about something that happened in the past to every believer. Every believer has been crucified with Christ and every believer has crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And I think he has conversion in mind for that reason. He's looking back on the break with sin that occurred when we trusted in Christ for salvation. And notice that he assumes that all who are Christ, that is, who are truly saved, have done this. They have crucified the flesh. In other words, all who are in Christ, all who belong to him, all who are truly saved, have made a decisive break with the old man and his sinful ways. They have, as you could put it in other terms, genuinely repented of their sins. Because that's what this amounts to, right? And this repentance to, continues to characterize their lives. So the Bible can talk about an act of repentance at conversion and a, a break with sin, but it can also talk about the need, right, to continue repenting. John Stott, I think, is very helpful at getting at the gist of Paul's meaning here when he writes in his commentary in this passage, quoting Stott now, Paul borrows the image of crucifixion, of course, from Christ himself, who said, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There he's citing Mark 8.34. To take up the cross was our Lord's vivid figure of speech for self-denial. Every follower of Christ is to behave like a condemned criminal and carry his cross to the place of execution. Now Paul takes the metaphor to its logical conclusion. We must not only take our cross and walk with it, but actually see that the execution takes place. We are actually to take the flesh, our willful and wayward self, and, metaphorically speaking, nail it to the cross. This is Paul's graphic description of repentance, of 
turning our back on the old life of selfishness and sin, repudiating it finally and utterly. I think he's right on there. But of course, this taking up of the cross is not just something we did at conversion. It's something we have to do every day, as Jesus taught in another place. In Luke 9, 23, for example. Luke 9, 23. We're told that our Lord Jesus said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So there's a sense in which uh, we've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires in a definitive way, with a definitive break with sin in the past, but there's also a sense in which we have to keep doing that every day. If we've done it in the past, we'll see the need to keep doing it every day. Right? That's the idea. And that's why Jesus can say we have to take up our cross daily. In, in other passages, Paul reflected this same idea when he spoke more generally of our need to uh, continually put to death Instead of using crucifixion as the idea, it just says simply put to death uh, our fleshly deeds and desires. Remember, for example, what he wrote to the Roman Christians in Romans 8. I'll be reading from Romans 8, verses 11 through 14 here. Paul says this, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. We don't owe the flesh anything. The flesh didn't save us, <laughs> right? We owe Christ everything. That's his idea. When he says, therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death, and there he's using a, a present tense, uh, meaning something we continually do, right? But if by the Spirit you're continually putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So for Paul, how can you tell those who are true children of God? Whether they're the ones being led by the Spirit of God. Well, how can you tell they're being led by the Spirit of God? Well, they're the ones who are constantly putting to death the deeds of the flesh. They're constantly nailing the flesh to the cross every day. They're constantly battling sin. When you look at their life, they're not people who have given in to sin and given up and aren't battling it at all. No, they're people who are battling it. Because that's what the Spirit does in the children of God. He battles sin. In a similar way, Paul wrote to the Colossian Corinthians, or <laughs> Colossian Christians. If they're Colossians, they can't be Corinthians, right? Uh, I need to go back to logic, of course, there. But uh, anyway, Paul wrote to the Colossian Christians. In Colossians 3, verses 3 through 5, Colossians 3, verses 3 through 5, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, uh, one uh, standard lexicon describes that this way when, it, when he refers to your members which are on earth. Whatever in you is worldly is basically what he means by that. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, and then he says, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And there he's giving another, although 
uh, representative list, although a more brief one than the one we saw about the works of the flesh in Galatians 5. So he can speak of our crucifying the flesh, our having done it, right? He also understands there's a need to continue doing that. And elsewhere, he just describes that as putting it to death. I would argue Paul has the same kind of thing in mind in this passage. Uh, the 19th century Scottish commentator John Brown did a, a good job of driving home the point Paul is making here when he wrote that, quote, Crucifixion produced death not suddenly but gradually. True Christians do not succeed in completely destroying it, that is the flesh, while here below. But they had it fixed to the cross and they are determined to keep it there till it expires. I think that's a pretty good way of describing what's going on here. I've taken the flesh and I've nailed it to the cross and I'm determined it's going to stay there till it's finally dead. Well, of course, that doesn't happen, as he said here below in this life. And when Paul says that we've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, with its passions and desires, there I think he's emphasizing the completeness of the crucifixion involved in our conversion and walk with Christ because not only are the outward expressions of the flesh dealt a death blow, right, but so are the inward dispositions and cravings of the flesh. So battling the flesh isn't a matter of just trying to look outwardly righteous. When we nail the flesh to the cross, we're nailing sinful desires to the cross, sinful thoughts, not just deeds. Now, as we think of how to apply what Paul is teaching here, I'd like to begin by cautioning us to avoid two extremes to which some professing Christians have sometimes gone. We must avoid perfectionism on the one hand and pessimism on the other hand. How do you like that for two Ps? Yeah. Once in a while, I can do some alliteration, but it's pretty rare. As you know, I'm alliterationally challenged. But uh, anyway, perfectionism is one of them. Now, perfectionists think that we can live free of the battle with the flesh and achieve moral perfection in this life. Such a view is held, for example, by John Wesley. Um, and it's held by many modern Methodists and those in the holiness movement, such as, say, Nazarenes, uh, today, who, who continue to follow his teaching on this point. Historically, it was also called entire sanctification, uh, and it is manifestly contrary to the teaching of Scripture, I would argue. But Paul is assuming in the very passage we're looking at, not a battle that's been won once and for all and you never have to have again, but that a battle every Christian's always going to face every day. Well, why say what he says? He's not assuming perfectionism here at all. Um, and I think he also rules it out, not just by the fact that he describes our battle with sin and the flesh as an ongoing battle in this life, here in this passage, but I think he rules it out quite explicitly in a passage like Philippians 3, 12 through 16. Philippians 3, 12 through 16. We've looked at this not too many months ago, um, but it's good to look at it again. In Philippians 3, beginning in verse 12, now Paul, once again, is using himself as an example of what we should expect to be true of all believers, in this case, mature believers. 
He says this, beginning in Philippians 3.12, not that I have already attained. Now think of this. Most of the Christians who knew Paul would have probably thought of him as like a super saint or something, right? And, and Paul says, not that I have already attained or I'm already perfected. But I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and if you look in the overall context, he doesn't mean just past failures, but also past successes, or what people might regard as successes. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, he says, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, Therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. Now, he's just said, I just told you what a mature Christian thinks like. A, ma a mature Christian thinks like this, I haven't apprehended perfection in this life. I'm constantly pressing on toward it. In the larger context, he makes it clear that the resurrection, right, is what we're pressing toward. That's when perfection comes. Paul refers to that as glorification in Romans 8. When that happens, when the process of sanctification is done, it's done at the resurrection. It's done. Finally then, completely at least, then. And so he says, therefore, let us, as many of us mature, are mature, have this mind. In other words, those who hold to perfectionism or entire uh, uh, sanctification do not have a mature attitude about this. It's, it's interesting. They think, some of them, that they have, actually have achieved sinless perfection, but they're what Paul would call immature. It doesn't quite go together, does it? And he says, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. He just did it through this passage, right? Nevertheless, to the degree that we've already attained, let us walk with the same rule. Let us be the same mind. So I would argue Paul clearly leaves no room for perfectionists in the church when we're talking about battling with sin. Perfectionism isn't something we're going to achieve in this life. Perfection. That's out. That's one extreme that we shouldn't go to. There's another extreme, pessimism. That's the idea that if I can't achieve perfection and fully win the battle here and now, why bother? Why try? Right? Uh, um, pessimists are those who seem to think we can have no victory over sin at all. They tend to live as though defeat to the flesh is inevitable, and so they really don't strive to battle it. They are very similar to those who falsely think that we may continue in sin, that grace may abound. Remember Paul challenged those people in Romans chapter 6, and he, re he told them to remember their baptism in this regard and what their baptism symbolized. Uh, for example, in Romans 6, beginning in verse 1, Romans 6, 1, Paul says, What should we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not! How should we who died to sin... Uh, elsewhere, he'd say, those who have been crucified with Christ, right, live any longer in it. 
Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now. He's talking about now. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now there he's speaking future tense. We walk in newness of life now, ultimate likeness to Christ and the ultimate life awaits the resurrection in the future to which our baptism also points. That's the assumption here that he's making. When he says, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with and that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So the pessimist basically says, just accept you're a slave of sin. Paul says, no, 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 no. You don't do that. The mature Christian, remember, is the one who's constantly pressing toward the goal. The one who's constantly battling sin, even if he understands God has not ordained that we will achieve complete victory over it in this life. We don't know why he set it up that way. He could entirely sanctify each one of us in a moment when we're saved. He doesn't do it. I don't know why. Any more than I know why when he led the people of Israel, I don't know all the reasons why, when he led the people of Israel in the land of Canaan, he left the people there. Now later we're told it was to test them. They had to keep battling for the land all the time. In the same way, uh, we had to keep battling all the time. Constantly being tested all the time. Why does he do that? Why, why is this his plan? I don't know. I'm not privy to his mind. I don't understand the ways of God. I just know that this is the way it's, it's revealed to us in Scripture, and therefore we believe it. So avoid those two extremes. Avoid the perfectionism on the one hand and the pessimism on the other. Accept that you're in a battle and accept that you can, although there will be defeats, have lots of victory. No, you've got to strive for that every day. Because I would argue that Paul teaches that we can have true victory over sin in this life, even if it is only gradual and is not complete in this life. But such victory requires that we continually walk in the Spirit, which is stressed again in the next verse, in verse 25, where Paul says, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Now, earlier in this epistle, already... Uh, Paul has commanded us to walk in the Spirit. It's in this very passage, remember? We started in verse 16 in our reading, where he said to walk in the Spirit. And then he also spoke about being led by the Spirit, in which the role of the Spirit himself was emphasized in verse 18. And in those passages, as well as this one in, in verse 25, Paul used the present tense about... Uh, this, and it denotes, it denotes a continual or habitual walking or being led. and uses that present tense here as well. In other words, being led by the Spirit and this walking in the Spirit is not something we do once and then we're done. It's a constant thing. In fact, that's why the imagery of walking in the Spirit is used. Walking. This isn't walking. Staying in place. This is walking, moving, continually going forward. That's walking. 
right? And that's the very image means something that's continual and ongoing, right? Of walking in the spirit, not just the present tense, the meaning of the word that's used and the imagery that's used demands this idea. It's not something you do once and you're finished. Any Christian that's standing still is not living the Christian life, right? Uh, thought of this way, at least. And so this walking in the Spirit is something that characterizes the whole life of the believer, day in and day out. But here in verse 25, there is an interesting difference. Paul uses a different word for walking than he used in verse 16. There he used the typical Greek word for walking, which is peripateo. Uh, but here he uses a specialized Greek word, stokeo, which literally means something like to be drawn up or advance in a line or to belong in ranks. It was used of soldiers marching or advancing in a line. Um, but it's used figuratively here with a sense of walking in the steps of the Spirit as he leads. Uh, we're like soldiers. He's described a battle. We're like soldiers in a battle. And our leader is the Spirit, and we're walking in his steps behind him, so to speak. This is all imagery, of course, but it's important imagery. I think the SV study Bible is on the right track when it says that this verb means to, quote, walk in line behind a leader. I think the New American Standard translates it as follow, to follow the Spirit here. J.I. Packer uh, was also close to the mark when, when he took it to mean that we must keep in step with the Spirit in a book that we, he actually titled that, Keep in Step with the Spirit, based on this, on this verse. You know, when, when I was in uh, boot camp in the United States Navy, some of you know I spent about five years in the Navy. Uh, when I was in boot camp, I was surprised to find out that we spent a great deal of time learning to march. Um, we marched for hours every day, learning how to follow the company commander's every step and every order. You had to turn a certain way. Some of you ex-military people know what I mean. You had to hold your rifle a certain way. You had to turn a certain way. You had to stop a certain way. You had to start marching a certain way. You had to, everybody had to march in unison. You know, your left, your right, your left, your right. At this, in the same way at the same time. Uh, we had to march in unison and in straight lines behind our squad leaders who, who were marching behind the company commander. But why does the Navy spend so much time on this when they train new recruits? When are sailors ever going to need to march around on the deck of a ship or down the passages of submarines? Um, the answer is that they're not going to need to do this. Um, in fact, I never once had to march anywhere when I was serving aboard the USS Karen for a couple of years. A destroyer. I don't remember ever marching anywhere on that ship. I remember running to battle stations a few times and things like that, but I remember marching anywhere. So why did they have us do that? Well, the point of learning to march couldn't have been that I needed to be able to do it when I got into the fleet. The point was that I learned to work together with a group as one unit and that I learned to follow orders. That was the point. And these abilities were absolutely essential to winning any battle that we might be engaged in. Even so, Paul has taught us in this passage that we're in a battle with the flesh in which the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, as he said in verse 17. And then in this battle, we must learn to be led by the spirit and keep in step with his every command. 
We know what those are because he issues those commands in Scripture. We know how to keep in step with the Spirit because the Scriptures reveal to us how to do that. In part, in passages like this. And in this passage, it means that we must increasingly put to death the works of the flesh and manifest the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. That's how you keep in step with the Spirit. That's how the Spirit, your, your commander in battle, <laughs> that's how you keep in line behind him. And you don't get distracted. It also means that we walk in humility, as Paul stresses in the next verse, in verse 26, when he says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. As John Stott has written regarding this verse, quote, this is a very instructive verse because it shows that our conduct to others is determined by our opinion of ourselves, end quote. I would only add that in, in the context, our opinion of ourselves is determined by our relationship to Christ, or it should be. A conceited person is a person that doesn't realize that he's Christ's and that his only strength to do anything is through the power of the Spirit. A conceited person, therefore, is never going to win this battle because a conceited person is going to be relying on himself or herself instead of on the Spirit. So this means that whatever we have, we have from Christ and not from ourselves, and so we must never become conceited. In fact, the Greek word translated conceited denotes being proud without any good reason for it, as one lexicon said. Being proud without any good reason for it. The linguistic key to the Greek New Testament says that the word means, quote, empty glorying, vainglory or vain-mindedness. It refers to one who knows how or who attempts to achieve unfounded respect and by his actions demonstrates big talk, boasting, and ambition. It's easy to imagine how such a person could either provoke others or envy others, isn't it? When <laughs> he says, don't be conceited, provoking or envying others. And apparently such provoking and envying had been going on in the Galatian churches. Or else why does Paul have to issue this warning? Remember uh, in this vein what Paul said in verse 15. He said, but if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Apparently where a false gospel of works righteousness comes in to a church and begins to cause problems, strife, and division, provoking one another, conceit, envying one another, that's what you see in a situation like that. Where people are starting to be told that they have to rely on themselves and their own works. Those people aren't being led by the Spirit. Those people are conceited. All they're going to do is provoke others and envy others. Paul knows that the root of such division is conceit, which all too easily forgets that all that we really have comes from Christ. We need to remember also how Paul challenged the Corinthian believers. I knew they were going to come up sometime. Uh, they were caught up in needless division. Remember in the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians, he challenges them for their pride and their, their arrogance. And they seemed to forget that everything they had, they had by the grace of God. And he said to them in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, again, this 1 Corinthians 4, 7, for who makes you differ from another what you had that you did not receive? Now, if indeed you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? 
Why do you act like these good things you have from God are your own doing? The only remedy for such a sinful passion as pride is to keep nailing it to the cross and walk in step with the Spirit. That's what this passage is telling us. You want to avoid that kind of conceit? You nail it to the cross every single day. And you walk in step with the Spirit. You seek the fruit of the Spirit, not the works of the flesh. Chief among them are pride, or is pride. And when we do this, we begin to value what our Lord Jesus values. We begin to value what the Spirit values, namely the fruit of the Spirit, by which we manifest Christ-likeness and bring glory to God. I was reminded uh, when teaching on this passage in the, in the past that, of something Martin DeHaan once wrote in Our Daily Bread, and I'll, I'll finish with this. He wrote, Why is it that some of the best things in life can sound so unappealing to us? Things like holiness, obedience, spirit control, and faith, for instance, why do they so often trigger a sudden yawn rather than wet eyes of thankful emotions? Could it be that we've underrated their value? Think how much these values can do for us. A truly spirit-controlled person won't cheat on a spouse, abuse a child, or fudge on an income tax return. A spirit-controlled person isn't even likely to kick the family dog or watch the best of intentions evaporate while lounging in front of a television. Every believer in Christ faces a constant challenge to live a pure life. Has that moment-by-moment -moment walk under the Holy Spirit's guidance seemed too difficult lately? Well, it's possible that we've been underrating what should be of greatest value to us. The cost to ourselves and our loved ones may be tremendous. If we find ourselves yielding to temptation again and again, perhaps we need to take stock of what's really important. It's time to learn to walk in the Spirit instead of sacrificing life's best for the short-sighted, self-destructive desires of the flesh. I think he's on to something. Is it a sacrifice to nail the flesh to the cross and crucify it every day? <laughs> right? Or as John Brown said, be determined to keep it nailed there till it expires. Yeah, it's a, it feels like a sacrifice to do that in some ways. But what DeHaan points out is that really it's a sacrifice not to do that. It's a sacrifice of everything that's good and best for us. It's sacrificing God's will. It's sacrificing the holy relationships you could have had. It's sacrificing a whole lot. It's, sac it's sacrificing everything that's good for everything that's bad. We see that happening all around us today, don't we? And so what he would say is, why don't you sacrifice what's bad for what's good instead? I agree with him. I think that's what we ought to do. That's what Paul says to do. That's what Jesus said to do. He said, pick up your cross daily. As I like to remind everyone, he wasn't taking that thing to a picnic. It does entail sacrifice. It may entail a lot of suffering. But if what we want is to bring glory to God, and that's what we should want, to bring glory to God as those who have been saved by his grace, then we'll also value what he values. 
will want the fruit of the Spirit. And we will despise the work of the flesh. And we will want to nail those works to the cross. And if you're struggling with having a want to, well, then you know where to get it. Prayer. Read the word. Study passages like this. Pray for God's grace, his continued grace, to battle the flesh. And I tell you, you may not have perfect victory in this life, but you will have victory. You'll have increasing victory. Let's pray. Holy Father, I pray for every brother and sister here today who has struggled in their battle with sin and has at times felt like giving up like that pessimist. Uh, that's probably where most people here have struggled. I doubt we have any perfectionists in this room. Uh, Lord, just forgive us when we get discouraged and we're tempted to grow weary in well-doing. Forgive us when, when we start to give in to that temptation and help us to have the wisdom to see that the sacrifices that we're making in not crucifying the flesh are far more detrimental and terrible and wicked than any sacrifice that we might be called upon to make for you. That is always for our best. Not only for your glory, but for our good. Help us not to think like the world thinks about these things, Lord, but to have the mind of Christ as it is revealed in the word. Forgive us where we fall short, I pray, and help us to have victory, continued victory, longing for the day when the battle will be over. And we see our Lord Jesus as he is in our glorified, resurrected bodies, never to be tempted by sin again. And Lord, uh, if there's anyone here today who's not yet come to know Christ as Lord and Savior, maybe, maybe they've heard this message and thought, well, that doesn't describe me at all. I'm, I don't even care about following God. And, but you've convicted them today that they should. I pray that today would be the day that he or she would say, Lord, I want to turn from my sin. I want to bow the knee to Jesus as Lord. I want to trust him to save me from my sins. I want to put all my faith in what he has done for me and not in my own efforts. Help them to trust, I pray. Do for them what you've done for us. Grant them repentance and faith so that they might trust in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, for their salvation. And we will give you all the glory for it because every day and in every way we are more and more convinced that you and you alone deserve the glory for anything good in us. And we praise you for it. We ask all these things for our good and for your glory and in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you once again for your kind attention.